So, we're going to be learning together. I have a lot of information I'm going to be sharing with you. Hopefully, some of it is not going to be... Well, it's not meant to be discouraging. It's to just help you understand the gravity of what we're dealing with and what we could do in whatever capacity we, we are privileged to. I know some of you are involved in healthcare. I know some of you are not. I know some of you have the desire to serve overseas. If you're, either you're going for short-term mission, long-term mission, or you're going to be supporting somebody who is out there, having this background and having this understanding would be important for you. For some of you who are medical, you would enjoy some of the some of the pathophysiology we're going to be talking about a little bit. I don't go into super details so that I don't lose some people. And some of the pictures, like I was saying earlier, I'm glad this is not this is not hap- didn't happen before lunch. But somebody reminded me it's close enough to dinner, but I think you all be all right. <laughs> so we're going to get right into it. My name is Olubukola Ujuala. I'll tell you what the first one means. If you, I'm of Nigerian descent, and anyone who knows anybody who is Nigerian, they have a name, is a whole sentence. Okay, Oluwabukola is a full um, statement, and it just my parents just declare that you know my coming into their lives as a blessing from God, as an addition of honor, and so the short form of it comes from B-U-K, Buki. That's a short form of it. So, of course, for those who don't want to go through the whole length, that would be the short form of my first name. So, what's my role? I'm at Liberty University College of Osteopathic Medicine. I'm an associate professor of pediatrics. I'm also the chair of pediatrics there. I've been part of that. I've been privileged, honestly, to be part of a medical school that's set up in the name of the Lord and with a desire to present medicine from a biblical perspective. So have this um, opportunity to share with you today about managing diarrheal diseases in children in under-resourced communities. Of course, you can tell I'm biased towards children. I love you all adults, okay, but the children are a lot more fun. <laughs> so I have had the opportunity to work in under-resourced communities over the years, not just in Nigeria where I trained in medical school, but through my work as a, uh, in public health, as a child survival specialist, technical backstop for USAID-funded projects in partnership with World Relief. I don't know if some of you might know, but World Relief, World Relief is, a, is a faith-based organization that has projects in different parts of the world. And I had the opportunity to work with a team, and we had projects in Cambodia, Rwanda, Malawi, and Mozambique, for the time I was there, designing programs targeted at children under five and mothers to improve survival, to reduce mortality. So you see why diarrheal diseases, managing diarrheal diseases is close to my heart. So for those of you who are interested in going um, outside the U.S. to, to help out or you want to support somebody who is there, we're going to be talking about the, the burden of diarrheal diseases in globally, but especially in those communities and countries that are worse affected. And what can we, what can we do? So we'll not only just identify the causes, we'll talk about what can we do, because of course it's not enough to just sit down and make a diagnosis. <laughs> it's, you have to find a treatment plan. So we're going to be diving into that together 
today. I'm, we'll go through a few cases. I'm going to encourage your participation. There are no grades, so no, no high stakes at all. So we're going to get right um, into this together. So I feel like it's important that we all agree on the definition of what is diarrhea. Because if you've spoken to people in different communities, different people call different things diarrhea. If you spoke to a grandmother or a 70-year-old, the definition might be different. So this is a global definition we're agreeing to, that there's three or more loose or liquid stools per day in an individual. In this particular situation, we're talking about a child. I'll take it a step further and talk about what are the types of diarrheal diseases that we're talking about. The most common one that you'll find, especially in our environment, and the, for, especially for those of us who are in the medical world, I want you to switch your hat and switch your mind from the way we manage diarrhea illnesses here with all the resources and access that we have to where you have very limited access. So around here, majority of the diarrheal illnesses we're dealing with will be acute watery diarrhea, diarrhea that's lasting less than 14 days. In some of the communities where we're going to be talking about today, you have a higher incidence of persistent diarrhea that's lasting more than 14 days. That's a long time. That's two whole weeks. And then in between, we'll be talking about dysentery and why that is such um, an important um, category that we need to be aware of to provide treatment for. So let's look at a, a, a few statistics. Well, you look globally, you see the leading, common, uh, leading causes of death in children worldwide, diarrhea ranks really high. Whatever you look at, it will be among the top five. Whatever uh, data you're looking at from before 2012, after 2012, it will be in the top five. And when you look at the age distribution, Children under five are still very much a huge proportion. In fact, about over a quarter of um, children under five, the, um, children under five constitute over a quarter of the whole picture of those who are affected by diarrheal diseases. When you look at this graph, we've come a long way, to be honest. In the 90s, we're talking about over 1.5 million deaths from diarrhea in children under five. Now we're at right about half a million, but that is still a lot, a lot more than should be happening for something that we know so much about and something that we have such simple intervention to prevent and to treat. And then, in those, among those children under five that are dying, every tenth death is because of diarrhea in this current time that we are in. So when you look at this, at this map, it's not, it's not um, the same everywhere. About 2,000 children die every day globally from diarrhea. The CDC put it this way, and when I read it that way, my goodness, it really hit me in a way that I didn't, I, when you look at just numbers, it talks about when you fill 32 school buses with children, that's the number we're looking at here. So that's a huge number of children dying every day from something that's preventable. When you look at industrialized communities, about 100,000 children, you might have less than one, or up to five 
children that are dying from diarrhea. But when you come to Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia, it's 30 times more. Uh, just looking on the higher end of children dying just from diarrheal diseases alone. So the numbers are not equitable in any way at all. But why is that the case? When you look at that little graph that I had that was scatter plots, the, the, each spot represents a country. You see that the socioeconomic, the social demographic index indicates the higher the social demographic index, the lower the mortality or case fatality from diarrheal diseases. So these are the factors that cause that disparity, huge disparity we see. Access. Access to healthcare is really huge. Access to safe water. There's a lot of water around us. So the, whole, the world is over 70% water. But we have less than 1.5% 1, 1 portable water available. And there's some communities that the, 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 the access portable is even way less than that. Income of the, of the household, sanitation, being able to have a place to dispose of, of feces away from water source is something that is a major concern. And then, of course, malnutrition. And we're going to dive deeper into some of those factors um, as we go on in this talk this evening. When you consider children in those communities, think of an infant having up to six diarrheal episodes in a year. That's a lot. That's like every other month. There's no time to recover from one before another one comes. So those are factors that really impact the ability to, to grow effectively and can affect the cognitive capacity as well. And for the older ones, they still have as many as three episodes in a year. That's a lot. And that has a huge impact on the outcome for all of those children. So let's look at some of those factors that affect or increase the risk of a child developing diarrheal illness or being exposed to it in the first place. Biology, there's some things, well, there's nothing you can do about some of those factors. Age, the age of the child. We know that diarrhea tends to peak between 6 and 11 months of age. And several factors play into that. That is when transition from breastfeeding occurs. For many mothers who ex exclusively breastfeed up to six months, that is when breastfeeding either slows down, goes away completely, and that is when other foods are being introduced. So if the, there's no clean water, the quality, the contamination that the child is going to have increases. Again, six to 11 months, that's when they get mobile. They're crawling, and when they crawl, where does everything go? In the mouth. <laughs> So that is another factor that plays into that. But that risk doesn't go away generally until they're like two years of age. So from six months to two years is a long time for them to be exposed to um, those factors. The age of the caretaker is also another critical one. When you have young mothers who don't have a lot of experience, don't have a lot of education, they don't have, they're not mature, they don't have so much support, they are more vulnerable. They don't know what to do. The other extreme also is when you have grandmothers who are the primary caretakers because the parents have to go out to work. 
the grandmother that might not be exposed to up-to-date information about how to best care for the child, or some of them are actually engaged in harmful practices with the children. So maybe a child has diarrhea, and then they're given sugary um, beverages because that's the only thing they have available, or they think that, or they're restricting fluid from that child, restricting food. Those are practices that will further harm that child, but they're doing the best they know. The birth order is another important one. Usually the firstborns get the best of everything, right? All the attention. How many of you are firstborns here? Ah, look at that. My husband never lets his sister forget that firstborn. He got all the attention, all the pictures, right? <laughs> and it's like, well, so you, now you have to do the work of the firstborn. I don't know how fair that is. But, <laughs> but think about it. The birth order, if the child is not the first, it's right in the middle. If, there's a, if the child is born and then the mom gets pregnant soon after, that again is going to determine how much attention that child is able to get, how much resource is available for that child. The further down in the, on, the, on the hierarchy or order that that child is, the less likely the, the resources are going to flow to that child. Nutritional status. I'm not going to dwell a lot on that because we're going to cover that. We'll spend a lot more time on that further down, as well as feeding mode. Is this child breastfed? Breastfeeding is God's gift to humankind. But we know that there are several factors that mitigate against breastfeeding, or even make it impossible for a woman to breastfeed exclusively for the first six months of life. There's so many alternatives. So we're going to look at that also um, in some more details as we go on. But we know it's not just biology that we need to factor here. We've talked a little bit about social demographics, but let's look at the environment as well. The social environment, maternal education, that has been found to be one significant factor in infant mortality. Not only just formal education, but the, the, that the mom has some idea or knowledge about how to care for her child from the newborn period, through the breastfeeding, winning faith, and all of that, it's been found that every year of education that the mom has has such a huge impact in reducing the chances of mortality as well as morbidity in that child. Rural or urban dwelling, that talks about access. When you look at under-resourced communities especially, the more remote the villages or the community is, the less likely that they will have access to medical interventions. Family income, of course, that speaks for itself. Well, how much, well, we're talking about ORT parking being 50 cents. For some families, that is not even available for the entire family to utilize, let alone. So when you have to pick between getting food for the entire family and getting an ORT packet for one child, it's a no-brainer. The money is going to go to where you can get resources for the entire family. We've talked a little bit about water and sanitation. We're going to dwell on that a little bit more as we go along. So this further elaborates how impactful these um, factors are. So when there's an inadequate water, sanitation, and hygiene um, resources, it can contribute up to 77% of risk in the development of diarrhea illnesses. And look at unsafe water. And I'm going to show you a picture that, that well, I'm sure a lot of you will be like, does that really happen? Look at that. How, how, many, how much contamination is happening in that water? 
all the activities happening around that water and just downstream somebody is drinking that heavily contaminated water. This is a perfect setting for this woman and her child to get exposed to all the bugs that will cause diarrheal illness in both of them. So when you're, when you're thinking about diarrheal illnesses in children, I want you to imagine all the other factors that will play into it and how the interplay between malnutrition and diarrhea is so strong and the why it's important that we break that cycle as quickly as we can because malnutrition does not just have an immediate effect, it has a long-term impact on that child. The early years, the first two years are really critical because that's when active brain development happens. And if that's already damaged, imagine what that would have, impact that would have long-term on the socioeconomic capacity of that child. So it becomes an intergenerational problem and we have to be able to break that cycle somehow. So see how diarrhea, we've talked about all of those factors in the, from the earlier slide, how early winning contamination would predispose to the, um, the microbes that will cause diarrhea and that would affect in itself, especially if the child has persistent diarrhea, would result in malnutrition. And because there's malnutrition, the atrophy of the gut mucosa and all the diminished resistance that's going on makes that child more prone to diarrhea again. So it's like a vicious cycle that just keeps perpetuating itself. And there has to be the interventions, thankfully, that we can employ that will make a difference. But let me share with you that 80% of under 5 deaths from diarrhea occur in children that have malnutrition. So a child that's malnourished is more prone to developing diarrhea and is more prone to dying from that diarrhea. So that is why this is such an important factor, an important thing we need to look at. But not all diarrhea is the same, right? Depending on the organism. So rotavirus is a big one, and it's the most common cause of the acute diarrhea. It's why it's a, what is most common in our community, but it's also what's most common around the world. The bacteria, cholera, shigella, those are two big ones. We'll talk about why cholera is such a big deal in a few minutes. Salmonella is another one. E. coli and all the other players, Campylobacter, but... Shigella and cholera are the big ones when you think bacterial. And we have a few players here as well, but not to the same degree as rota and cholera. So, of course, for those who are medical, you love this kind of thing because it shows you all the etiology. And, but this is something that will be really, really important for us to remember as we go out there and work with people who are not as knowledgeable because we can intervene without knowing the agent. And the reason this is so critical is because dehydration is the thing we're most scared about when a child has diarrhea. And we can start to intervene to prevent dehydration or treat dehydration in a child without even knowing what caused the diarrhea in the first place. So, brace yourself. We're going to work through some cases right now. Are you going to it's going to be good. <laughs> so the first person we're going to meet is, I call her Jasmine. Little Jasmine. Let me tell you a little bit more about Jasmine and her story. She's six months old. 
she was born low birth weight. So you see the, there's a risk already there. She's the third child of a 21-year-old mother. And she's presenting today with a two-day history of watery, non-bloody diarrhea. She has had five episodes so far in the last 24 hours. There's no fever, no vomiting or respiratory symptoms. So that's kind of reassuring. But the fact that she's had so many um, bowel mo movements is, is concerning. She's able to drink, which is good. So mom, but mom is afraid of giving her milk because she thinks it's going to make her diarrhea worse. Somebody told her that. She has two older siblings who are in school, the local preschool. So, you know, everything happens at daycare, right? <laughs> they bring it home. So, who knows what they've been bringing home. So, while you examine her, examine her, she goes again, the sixth one. And mom shows you, hey, this is what we have. This looks like a real little bowl of soup. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, how would you describe this? And volunteers, what, what would be just like two two descriptions of this? I can't see very well. Is that that's not? Is that like rice water? Or no? Um, no. I know the the, the resolution. Green, so watery. green, watery, oh, okay. right? Uh, yeah, he's right. He's projecting the smell. We don't want to go there. <laughs> well, okay. But it's watery and it's a lot and it's green. So. Based on that description, for those of us who are medical, what's, what, what do we think this child has? Rotavirus. Yes, that's classic description of rotavirus stool. If you've smelled, so smelled it once, you never forget. It's the most common cause of diarrhea in children, period. Especially when they're under two years of age. The biggest concern we have is dehydration and hypovolemia. So this is just kind of a quick walkthrough pathophysiology, uh, just the surface pathophysiology for those of us who are interested in that. So you see how this goes, it's a fecal oral route of transmission. That means feces to the mouth. Ingestion happens, intestinal colonization of the, uh, with the, um, and this doesn't have to, it's not peculiar to rotavirus, this is just from any infectious um, cause of diarrhea. So the body responds by generating cytotoxins. You have the invasion of the mucosal lining in the thelium, and all the acute inflammation that goes on, there's swelling, there's redness, there's loss of function, and all that will result in the colon not being, having more fluid than it can manage. All the and transport, complex transport system, sodium, um, potassium, um, glucose, is going to happen, and the, the end of it is that there's more fluid in the colon than the colon can handle, and that is what will be the diarrhea that we're, um, this child is experiencing. So now I'm going to introduce you to our next um, friend. He's not looking good at all. This is Zane. And from his exam, of oh, just looking at him, can, can we point out two things that make you be really concerned about Zane? Sunken eyes. Sunken eyes. Totally, I agree. Anything else? Yeah, he doesn't look very responsive. Um, his temple, okay. And then look at his skin. Ten ten. Yes, loss of skin tugger. 
So this kid is in a bad state. This is severe dehydration. It doesn't get more severe than this. But let's, start, let's look at his story. How did it get here? That's the stool that you were talking about. The rice water stool. He's six years old. Just came in, brought in by his grandmother and community health worker. Because this started a day ago. And he was a painless, profuse, watery, non-bloody stools that started out with abdominal cramps. So the grandmother said, that she gave him a homemade ORS the day before, but today he's been so bad he can't keep anything down. He's just going all the time from both ends that she's really at a loss. This is a very key information. Some other people in the village have had a, a similar symptom. So what are we dealing with here? Cholera. Great job. See, you guys make my work easy. Hey. So this is cholera. The greatest concern with cholera is that it's so, there could be such rapid fluid loss that in a number of hours, if there's no intervention, it could lead to death. So Zane needs urgent attention. Otherwise, he's not going to be around for much longer. That is one of the biggest challenges with cholera. And the WHO has launched a campaign to get rid of cholera by 2030. I'm sure when this was put out, 2030 was far away. Now it's only eight years away. <laughs> so, but hey, I hope at least we get close to um, where we can say it's coming to an end. This is our third and last friend that I'm going to introduce you to. This is Adelina. You can see that she doesn't seem to be too interested in taking this photo. The mom is so smiling and ready for it, but she's not. Let me tell you some of her story. She's a four-year-old female. She has a history of malnutrition, so she's receiving supplements, ready-to-use therapeutic feeding, is what our UTF is. She's had those brownish stools that lasted for about two weeks. The reason they're coming in today is because mom noticed there's blood in it. Now it's, it's serious. She's been trying to give her ORS on her own at home, but when she noticed the blood was when she was more concerned. There's no vomiting. Appetite is not the same. She still has relatively good um, urinary output and nobody has been sick around her. Her history is significant for diarrhea about a month ago. It lasted about a week. So of course if she had a diarrhea last, uh, a month ago that lasted about a week, that's the reason part of, that's part of the reason mom's like, oh, this is just, it's, when it's a week old, she's kind of like, it's probably going to go away, but now it's two weeks and now it's bloody. It's part of why she's more concerned. The only thing that, we, that is significant from what her exam is that she now has fever. So, let's see her stool sample. So, this is a closer up look that shows you the blood in that stool. So, we're going to act a little more differently on her. So, yes, Zane definitely needs to be in hospital, needs to be aggressive IV fluid therapy. Um, our first friend Jasmine will probably go home and continue oral rehydration and that should work. But for Adelina, we're going to need to admit her because of her background history of malnutrition. This is two weeks now that we're dealing with and we need to consider HIV screening in this, in this little girl. So let's talk a little bit about persistent diarrhea. It's not the most common, thankfully, but when it does occur, when you think about the impact and the, and the um, interplay with malnutrition, 
you see how that together uh, malnutrition all those uh, dietary deficiencies of micronutrients and diarrhea is a bad combination because it can, it, again when the your immune compromise you can't fight as well so the, the kind of organisms that she'll be dealing with will be different and then intercurrent illnesses especially when we think about HIV so let's talk about HIV and diarrhea so when a child has HIV they're more prone to infections period and they're more prone to developing diarrhea and dehydration from that oftentimes the, the, um, when they have diarrhea might be actually the first time that somebody considers and makes a diagnosis of HIV in the communities where universal screening does not occur in pregnancy. And it's actually one of the eight defining illnesses. And imagine 11 times higher risk of death when you have HIV compared to a child that does not have HIV. That's part of the reason we want to know for sure with Adelina if that's what we're dealing with. The other downside is that even with anti antiretroviral therapy, in many of those um, um, medications have diarrhea as a side effect. So it's important that we know all of this. The, the parents are educated, the care, all the caretakers are educated about the role diarrhea plays when you're thinking about its, um, how it has such an impact in patients with HIV. I want to remind you of the, this is the reason I highlighted persistent diarrhea because persistent diarrhea on its own has twice the chances of causing mortality in a child compared to a child that has acute diarrhea. So that makes it a big deal. So I've told you all of this statistics, all the intercurrent things like, okay, so what do we do? I've given you the kind of like all the bad news. Where do we go from here? The first thing is assessment. We need to be able to make an assessment. We need to be able to train everybody that's around those children how to make an accurate assessment. Because there are things we can do to prevent all the, all the things that could result in death from diarrheal illness. The biggest thing we want to be able to recognize is dehydration. So from my history and physical exam, we already talked about some of that. From looking at Zane's picture, we could pick out from a distance that this child is in severe dehydration. Dehydration is the biggest threat when a child has diarrhea. So we want to do everything. We want everybody to be able to do something to ensure that we don't get into that, into that position. So I'm going to show um, two um, tables side by side. So for those of us who have gone to nursing school, med school, doing anything in public health when we're talking of dehydration, we're talking percentages, right? 5%, 5 to 10%, greater than 10%. We're expecting that we know the weight of that child. But in a lot of the communities, we, that's a luxury. We don't know the weight of the child we're dealing with. So that colorful chart over there is what the WHO has um, provided through the integrated um, management of childhood illnesses to simplify um, care in a way that a community health worker, a parent, can understand how to identify dehydration. So, we already look at, looked at Zane. It, clearly, Zane 
falls under severe dehydration. He has at least two things that we could see. Sunken eyes, skin pain, she goes back very slowly. And he describes it in layman's terms that any, nobody would be confused. And then we have those with some dehydration, and then we have the child with no dehydration. We'll talk about why that is important. They say, like, oh, well, there's no dehydration. What's there to worry about? We, again, we want to make sure that we are able to prevent that from happening. So this picture kind of just shows you all the different features that, would, that you look out for in a child that has severe dehydration. So we've done our, we've talked about all the risk factors, the burden of the disease. We're talking about assessment now. How, as we, we've done assessment, how do we treat? The first thing, kind of like going back to assessment, triage. Everybody needs to learn how to triage. The mom needs to know how to triage. Um, every caretaker and the community health workers need to, need to know how to triage when we've identified, okay, is there no dehydration, some dehydration, severe dehydration, where do we go from there? Like, I mean, this has become my sing-song. We want to treat dehydration if we find it. And if we don't find it and there's diarrhea, we want to make sure it doesn't happen. So that's the goal. That is what we want to everybody to go away with, to know that that is possible. So when we talk about rehydration in these children that have um, diarrhea, if they fall under the category of mild or moderate dehydration, which by the WHO language would be mild or some dehydration, we can institute oral rehydration therapy right away. If they have severe dehydration, we have no business with ORT. Immediately, we have to go with intravenous hydration. But again, like I said, there are several factors that, make it, that could make intravenous hydration not possible immediately. It might mean that they are hours away traveling by road to get to where intravenous hydration is possible. It might be a limited um, amount of sailing that they have, or there might not be expertise for intravenous hydration uh, for a number of hours. So that's why it's so important that they're able to recognize so they can head out as soon as possible and not wait until the morning um, because they, they don't realize that this is severe. This is some of the other reasons why oral rehydration would not be possible. Of course, if the child has altered mental status, maybe from severe dehydration or other reasons, we are not able to do that. If the fluid loss is in excess, we're not able to keep up with, the fluid, uh, with how much diarrhea the child is having, or the child is not able to drink, then oral rehydration does not become a first line or, uh, anymore. If there's any abdominal ileus, then we're not doing um, oral rehydration. So oral rehydration therapy has been tagged the most important medical advancement of the 20th century. It's very simple. But you see, it's been around for more than 50 years, but there's still a lot of children dying from diarrheal illnesses. There's a really big disconnect. So let's go through a little bit of history here. So as early as the 1940s, some pediatricians, God bless pediatricians, of course I'm biased, <laughs> they, they discovered that you could use um, electrolyte solutions as maintenance therapy in children that had diarrhea. Well, it wasn't until the 60s that it was put to test in clinical studies during a cholera outbreak in Bangladesh that they then were able to establish 
for sure the efficacy of ORS. 1978, the WHO adopted it and it's been made available worldwide, promoted it. But look at 1978 to now, how many years are we talking about? And we still have so much um, diarrhea death from something that we, we have answers to. A lot of the credit for this reduction in um, diarrhea deaths in children have been attributed to the availability of ORS. But there's still a whole lot more work that needs to be done by everybody. So this is what you'll find in a WHO ORS packet. So it usually comes in a little packet. There's so many different versions of it that have been um, adopted in different communities. We have a little bit of some glucose, sodium, um, potassium, and citrate all put together. And you put it, it, it recommends how much uh, water you need to dissolve that in. But not everybody has access to this. Like I said earlier, it's, it's relatively cheap. A package would be about 50 cents. But for somebody else, 50 cents who earns less than a dollar a day, 50 cents is a huge amount of money. So what can they do? They can pro produce their own at home. Instruction is critical, though, so that the proportions are right. A liter of water, six level teaspoons of sugar, and half level teaspoon of salt. They mix it really well and feed a little bit at a time to that child. This is some other fluids that are acceptable that could be given. Anything that has salt in it is generally what's preferred. This will be the least preferred because it will have a lot more sugar than salt, uh, even if it's kind of homemade. But this is some of the, the coconut water it definitely is acceptable. Um, water by itself is, is better than nothing. So, but you, this is just to show us some of the other fluids that are generally acceptable in case they don't have um, access to the ORS packet. So when we're talking fluid replacement, we're looking at two different um, stages. So kind of similar to what you would do in an emergency department where you give a bolus and then you give a maintenance. And that's why it's being mirrored here. So you have a rehydration where you quickly replace fluid. If you notice, you're giving small frequent amount of fluid, like five ml every one to two minutes. Even in a child that is vomiting, most of them you can still kind of do a, maintain a little bit of that such that you can prevent worsening or if you don't have the resources to get um, an IV fluid, uh, IV fluid started and the child is not yet in severe dehydration, you can still keep pushing through a syringe, but you want to be sure you don't do it too fast. And then after you feel like um, the dehydration is taken care of, then you go into maintenance phase and you continue to give extra fluids and fluid until diarrhea stops. So when you send them home, you instruct the mom, you have to keep giving the fluids, extra fluids until diarrhea has stopped because you can't, it's difficult for you to estimate or have the mother estimate how much fluid is being lost in diarrhea. That measurement, you don't want her to be messing with the, with the stools because that's another source of contamination and all of that. So when you are in, a, in that setting in the clinic or you're instructing or training community health workers, this is another chart that you can use 
If you have weight, excellent. When you don't have weight and you have the age of the child, that becomes a guide for you to determine how much fluid replacement each child should have. We've talked a little about severe dehydration. The two things I want to um, expand on here, or that I want to draw your attention to. This, the, the first one is that severe dehydration is a medical emergency and it requires emergent intervention, IV therapy. The other thing I want to also emphasize here is that you need to keep the IV line in place until successful transition to ORS has occurred. So you have to get that IV line that you've able to secure with all that you got. <laughs> you don't want to lose it. You want to make sure that you get that child out of dehydration before you transition to ORS completely. So how about the child that's not dehydrated? There's diarrhea. That's the reason we want to make sure that we're giving ORS still to make sure to assure that we prevent dehydration from occurring in that child and it's really important that that child is fed. Whatever is normal, this is not the time to restrict or withdraw food. This is not the time to do a bland diet. No, we want to feed this child as reasonably as possible because of course with their real illness and infectious process, they're in hypermetabolic state and they're fighting. This is a key information that community health workers and, and caretakers need to have sealed in their minds. ORS does not prevent or stop diarrhea. The goal of ORS is that we're targeting dehydration, which is more likely to, call, to, to cause death in this child. So that is the goal. So they need to get the fluid in because of dehydration. So all of these other things need to continue. Nutritional support. Research has shown that babies who are exclusively breastfed are they're 14 times less likely to develop diarrhea was a very significant diarrhea compared to those who were not exclusively breastfed, even compared to those who are partially breastfed. So breastfeeding, we want to promote that as much as possible. I've talked a little bit about the diet. Zinc treatment is recommended for every child in an under-resourced community that has diarrhea. You start as soon as the diarrhea has been picked up, up until 14 days after the diarrhea episode starts. Zinc has been found to help with healing. It's very important for the um, immune system functioning. So we want to make sure that they get that. If the child is less than six months, then you can do half the, the dose of zinc that um, you're given here. Vitamin A is another one. For those who have persistent diarrhea, that's where it becomes really, really important. So if the children who are malnourished and they're already receiving um, ready to use therapeutic feeding, you don't need to give additional um, um, vitamin A supplement, but if they are, if they're not receiving that, then you give it. Um, and the dose is um, 100,000 units for those who are less than six months, and those who are older, you do 200,000 units. So when we look at a child like Adelina that has dysentery, we'll need to do antibiotics. Or somebody like Zane, who has cholera, we need to treat with antibiotics. And you need to be familiar with what antibiotics are locally available, that are readily accessible for you. The WHO recommendations are slightly different when you treat some of these conditions than what you're used to 
in the U.S. So it will be really important when you're going out that you have, you know, what the formulary is and what's available. Oftentimes, you don't have the um, information about um, antibiotic resistance pattern either. So what's empiric um, medication and what is available, affordable, is what you want to make sure that you have available. So I've talked a lot about treatments that you could try. There are certain treatments in children that we don't recommend. We don't do anti-motility agents because they carry the risk of pyolytic ileus and that was going to make things worse. We don't do anti-secretory agents. That's one of the things that tend to, a lot of um, people do with adults. Anti-emetic agents we also do not do. There are very few occasions, rare occasions that we could make exceptions for this, but again, the medications that are available that we take for granted, Zofran, is not readily available in those settings. So generally, we don't even recommend doing any anti-emetic agents in general. So everybody needs to know, when do I need to seek care? When is ORS not working? We already covered some of this, uh, um, these three factors. But when the child is not able to drink or eat for more than a few hours if they're an infant or more than eight hours if it's a child, it's time to get out of the house and go seek care. If abdominal pain is worsening, if a child that was active before is now becoming lethargic, it's time to, it's not that the child is just sleepy. There's worsening of the situation and they need to be seen. If you don't teach parents and community health workers anything else in the time that you are there, they need to know this. The three F's. This is the caretaker's rule. Fluids. The child has diarrhea. You have to get fluids. You have to get food. And you have to know when to get further care. More than anything else, this needs to be etched in their memories. Fluids, food, further care. They need to know this. So we've been talking about a lot of interventions, but all of what I've been talking about focuses on case management. We've centered on the child. But what about the community? Where's that child coming from? Remember Zane? There are other people in the community that have cholera. What are we going to do about that? That is where we can't, as a, as a physician or healthcare provider that's in those communities, your role would always flow into beyond just a clinic, beyond just the case management, you have a huge role to play in the community, engaging the community at all levels, engaging with policy makers, providing education, being an advocate for what is appropriate to reduce the burden of diarrheal illnesses in those children. So these are the kind of the key things. Making access to safe water or making safe water available Adequate sanitation is so important. Hand washing, making sure that there's clean water to wash hands, not washing hands with contaminated water, and rotavirus. The rotavirus vaccine has been found to be very effective. And um, between 2008 and 2016, the use of rotavirus vaccine was found to reduce 40% of hospital admissions related to rotavirus in under-resourced communities. So you can imagine, and that's not even that all of them got fully, <laughs> the full doses, some of them just got one, 
But it made such a big difference, up to 40%. Imagine if we got everybody vaccinated, it will make a much a greater, it will have a greater impact. But we can't do the vaccination without taking care of all the other factors as well because the vaccination in itself is not sufficient. So how do we get into, um, how do we engage a community? There are three parts, I would say. There has to be engaging all stakeholders. All stakeholders. Everyone that has, that provides any healthcare service at all in the community, including traditional healers, traditional birth attendants. I know some people get worried that if you start engaging traditional healers, there's a fine line between endorsing what they're doing and making them feel like, oh, well, no, no, that, that you're okay with what they're doing. But if you don't engage them, they have to continue to provide services. And if the services they're providing are suboptimal or outright harmful, if you don't engage them and exclude them, you don't, you, uh, there's no opportunity to educate them. There's no opportunity to bring them in to what is important so that everybody is speaking the same language. So you, ex- you educate the, the mothers and the caretakers and they also know that when a child has diarrhea, the three things, fluid, food, and further care are the key things that we need to pay attention to. And then training, first time training is really not so hard, right? Everybody comes to get the modules and all of that. The refresher is usually the harder one. So people have been trained and you come back two years later and the training has morphed into something else. Everybody is doing their own thing. There's so many modifications of what's been, what was taught originally that making the time to do the refreshers is so key. So if you were thinking, okay, I'm going out there and I want to be part of an intervention, a program, what are the key things you want to think about? How do we make ORS available? What's the chain of delivery? What's the distribution model? What's available? Who's able to fund it? What are some of the governmental um, clearances that you need to get? How many can you bring in your suitcase? Those are the kind of things you need to know. Information, what's available? Information and misinformation. Who's providing the information? Who's providing the education? Who's, how do I communicate? Who do I need to be talking to? And then there's a, there are lots and lots of materials out there, that some very well produced, that are available in local languages. Some of the, that are culturally accepted. There's some things that are, that certain words that you might think is just normal that may not be acceptable. So what's, what available, what's available? Social media, let's utilize that as much as possible. But again, we have to be engaged in monitoring and evaluation. It's the information that's out there still the correct, up-to-date information. Our moms are well supported with the information they need for their children's best outcome. So, of course, we're engaging at all levels, policymakers at every level, who's determining um, what, what, what lab services are available, who's responsible for disease surveillance in Zane's community, who's monitoring the cholera outbreak. We need to be able to engage with those people. How do we prevent the next outbreak? How do we contain this one? Who's training the healthcare workers? What, what resources do they have? Are they using old, outdated material, or do they need updated one? Again, all this, um, mater- all this um, intervention, the products, zinc, rotavirus vaccine, who, where are they getting it from? Antibiotics, where, where are we getting the supplies? 
who's involved. Everybody, everybody has to be on board for these interventions to be effective, both at the case management level as well as when we're engaging the larger community. So, in conclusion, I want to remind us that diarrhea is a totally preventable disease, but it's still a killing a global killer of children under five. There's some gains, some progress has been made over the years, but there's so much more to be done. The reason the area is such a big threat is because of dehydration. So we want to make sure that we're able to support the community, support the caretakers, to make a proper assessment and to treat as quickly as possible, intervene with fluids, fluid, and um, fluids, food, and determining where further care is needed. And everybody, all hands have to be on deck for this to happen. There's a common African saying that it takes a village to raise a child. It does take a village, and we are part of that village. We're part of the people that will advocate. We're part of the people that would... Uh, support those who are out there on ground. We're part of those who will provide education to the caretakers to push so that the future of those young people are preserved and they don't succumb to diarrheal illness. Because remember what Jesus told us, if you've done it for one of those little ones, the least of them, you've done it for me. Thank you for your time. I'm going to invite questions, comments. Yes, ma'am. Um, I have a comment and then two questions. I was glad to see about the, the regular diet. Um, even here in the States, we still get grandma doing brat, uh, either the brat diet, which is not what we're supposed to be doing. Um, so regular diet as opposed to any of these restricted diets. Mm -hmm. But the, the home ORS recipe, easy question, is that the regular ORS or the low osmo replacement so the homemade one is it's not it's not the lower or smaller it's one. It's the regular. Yes. And then can you comment on? Um, I, I was in Haiti during cholera, and there's a lot of you know back and forth for bacterial illnesses in, in cholera um, about the use of antibiotics. And you put up about the antibiotics for cholera and something else, salmonella maybe. Um, but there's still some disagreement on whether or not we should be using antibiotics in those cases. Can you comment on that? Absolutely. So the second question, because I know I didn't, tell, I didn't tell you her first question. She was asking about the homemade ORS, whether it's a reduced osmolarity in that one, and it's a regular one. It's a previous, because um, the WHO had a higher osmolar and then the lower one. And then the second question she asked is about use of antibiotics in patients with cholera. So the, the recommendation is if it's severe cholera, you should absolutely treat with antibiotics. If it's mild, then you can get away with just supportive care and not have to use antibiotics. But if it's severe, then antibiotic is recommended. Yes. Uh, a lot of times, uh, I was uh, in, in Haiti with cholera too, ah. 20, 2010, 2011, but mm. a lot of times we would, uh, as you said, Hydration is, is of paramount importance. So, but it, and at first they can't take uh, you know antibiotics anyway. So uh, oftentimes we wait for them once they can start taking okay. the oral and administer like docs and stuff.
Excellent. Thank you. Other questions, comments? Yes, there's a question in the back. Um, so, um, what if you have a kid where a child comes in, very lethargic, almost unconscious, cannot drink, um, his veins are collapsed, you really don't have the help um, giving it to What do you have That's a very tough one because you're talking of a child in imminent shock. And um, you just have to, so of course, intraosseous would be an option. But again, you have to look at the environment you're, you're in because you have to weigh the risk. Okay, we'll do the intraosseous and we'll get the child revived, but you have to take care of that site very carefully so it doesn't get infected. And then you're talking about semilitis and sepsis. So I guess if you're not able to get an IV in, intraosseous would be an option. NG is not an option. For a child that is, has altered mental status, is almost in an unconscious state, NG tube is not, it's not a good option because risk of aspiration and all of that. So that's the other option that I would say that you have. And as soon as you get some fluid in and you can get an IV in place, you go for it. It's a tough spot to be. Yes, sir. I'm curious just what IV fluid would you recommend and then also oftentimes in a setting like this like Haiti or when you're in a uh, low income uh, country uh, you really can't uh, you know monitor uh, uh, specifically electrolytes what are your comments about like potassium or magnesium replacement I know so usually saline is your best bet your, your volume expander. You, you don't have to worry too much about, of course, you have to assume hypokalemia and it's, it's severe um, diarrhea, but because you can't monitor what's going on, you're, and now sometimes the renal output is the reason you don't want to do ringers. You might not even have ringers lactate. <laughs> so even when you do have ringers lactate, you're limited because you don't want to call for the renal damage because of the potassium that is in ringers. So saline is what's recommended. Your normal saline, you do your bolus, and then you re-evaluate, and then you transition to oral fluids as quickly as you can. And I'm just curious, like for potassium, uh, and there, I know there's different approaches, but do you, um, do you just uh, like try and repeat, you know, once they can take orals, you just try and get their potassium through their diet, or do you give a potassium supplement empirically? What do you do? So for potassium, generally, the, it's not recommended that you do parenteral. Right. So, so you want to do your fluid uh, volume expander as quickly as possible, and hopefully you can get them to where they can take orally. Yeah. And if you have the ORS packet, it has some potassium in it, that's how you get the supplement in um, with diet. Yeah. Hopefully they, they recovered quick enough for you to do all that. Yes? Some of the people that were dealing with cholera, their antibiotic of choice was erythromycin. And um, being penallergic, erythromycin makes it puke. Uh, so when you're trying, you know, and same thing with potassium, it's nasty on the stomach. Uh, so we have to make sure that our treatment isn't going to compound our problem. I know. That's, it's always a balance. You have to weigh the risk and benefit and decide, okay, should we look at immediate recovery now and then deal with the other things later on? And so oftentimes, like, what can we do for survival in the, in the immediate period is usually what would kind of carry the day. 
Okay, I know it's 5 o'clock. I don't want to keep you. If you have any further questions, comments, please, I'll be here. And we can chat some more. Thank you all for coming. Have a, have a great evening. Enjoy your dinner.